This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a meaningful and merciful life. Two quick things before we get to today's episode. First of all, big shout out to all of my buddies in the Missing Chins Run Club who were on Good Morning America last week. Uh, Josh Lajani and Tim Kaufman and Marcus Cook and Joshua Turner and, and Jason Cohen and Justin Lacey and, of course, all of the chins who didn't make it up to New York but are still representing in their own communities and on social media and doing the thing. If you're not sure what the Missing Chins Run Club is, it's been featured in Runner's World and People Magazine. Um, it's a group of, as Josh describes it, um, ex-beer-drinking, back-slapping fat boys who discovered running and a plant-based diet. And man, seven minutes live on Good Morning America is an amazing accomplishment. So if you want to see that, I've created a redirect from Plant Yourself to that video. All you have to do is go to plantyourself.com slash GMA for Good Morning America. GMA, all lowercase, and you can watch that yourself. It's really amazing. And it would be great if you could share that on your own social media feeds to help spread the word. It's a wonderful little segment. Um, if you're really into the plant-based thing, you may at first be a little bit disappointed because they only mention it a couple times and it's not the highlight or the centerpiece of the story. Really, community is. And at the same time, I can't tell you how many men from around the country have become really interested and have, have requested to join because we didn't start out by saying, hey, join this vegan club, but simply sort of putting in the idea of plant-based a little bit and talking about this camaraderie and these transformations that these men have made. It's a wonderful opening for open-minded men who want to change their lives. So again, plantyourself.com slash GMA. Go watch it, share it. Uh, it's amazing. Second thing is today's guest has a book that he sent to me, and I've got two copies to give away, and it's phenomenal. So the guest is Nathan Runkle, who is the founder of Mercy for Animals, and I'll talk about all that in just a minute as an introduction. The book is called Mercy for Animals. It was written by Nathan and my buddy Gene Stone, who is a friend of the podcast, and some of you may know Gene and I um, have an occasional other podcast called the Trump Survival Guide podcast based on Gene's book of the same name. And so... You know, anything written with Gene is going to be phenomenal. He's the writer that I would like to grow up to be one day. And the book is great. I can't tell you how moving and exciting and interesting and inspiring it is. And it's a wonderful book for people who are not fully in the plant-based or animal welfare or animal rights or environmental communities because it just makes so much damn sense that the way we treat animals in factory farms, even if you think eating them is fine, that the way we treat them is nothing short of cruel and torturous, and it's got to stop. And it's a wonderful way in for people who are not willing to embrace all the aspects of the plant-based lifestyle. So that said, we got a book giveaway because he sent me two copies. He's actually sent me three. I'm keeping one. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't parting with that third one. But two of them are going to be given away. And I don't really know how to do this. So I've been asking around and getting some ideas. And I think what I would like is to enter 
the the drawing for a chance to win one of the books. I'd like you to listen to this episode and then share it on some social media platform of your own and write a little blurb about why you think the people who follow you, who like your stuff, who listen to you and your network would get something out of listening to this particular episode. So this doesn't, I mean, it benefits me in that, you know, it gets more people to hear about the podcast, but it's not a direct benefit. I'm not asking you to, you know, go to iTunes and review um, Plant Yourself. I'm not asking you to join my email list, but really to help spread the word around Nathan and his work. So for every, um, and then what you want, what I want you to do is email me a link to that post. I'm on, I'm on the, the big ones, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, so if you email me a link to each of those posts, that'll be one entry in the drawing. The other thing is I don't really feel like spending 40 bucks to send this to, you know, Kuala Lumpur or, or somewhere outside of the U S or Canada. So sorry about that, but please, um, if you're, if you're not somewhere where I can mail it cheaply media mail, um, I, I'm not going to do it. So, um, with that said, listen to the episode and then if you think it's worthy of sharing and you'd like to be entered into the drawing to win the book, post on some social media, maybe Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, about what you got out of this episode and why you think other folks would benefit from listening. Just email me the link at hj at plantyourself.com. And within a couple of weeks, I hope to have announced the two winners. Okay, so on to today's interview. I've got to say that this is one of those interviews that makes me really thankful that I decided four years ago to start a podcast, which, which is to say there's a lot of people that I can talk to just, you know, who are doing amazing things, but they're, you know, accessible. But there's a bunch of people who are kind of so busy and so crucial to their movements that they're, they're highly, um, I would say, strategic about how they use their time. They're not just going to have a chat with some guy um, just because he wants to talk to them. And it has nothing to do with not being generous. After all, these people are giving their entire lives to a cause bigger than themselves. It's simply about being strategic. And so I thank my lucky stars that I've gotten the Plant Yourself podcast to the place where a certain type of person finds it strategic to speak to me. And one of those people is Nathan Runkle, who he's in, he's like in his 30s. And, and his, his organization is like 16 years old. And he started when he was 15. So here's a guy who has grown into leadership literally from adolescence on for leading the same organization, Mercy for Animals, which has done incredible work in the world. From their famous undercover exposés of the cruelties that, that go on in factory farms to their legal stuff around changing the laws around animal agriculture to corporate um, outreach to companies to get them to sort of bend to public pressure and improve the way they treat the animals in their supply chains to education for the rest of us. Uh, Mercy for Animals is a model of how to build a successful, effective, hard-hitting, compassionate organization that, that is inclusive, that gets people to want to help rather than trying to, you know, bully or shame or, or guilt or shout them into activism, as, as you'll hear Nathan say during our interview. So it's a, such a huge honor to have someone like this sharing an hour with me and with you, with all of us. 
and I hope you get as much out of it as I have. So enjoy the interview. I'll be back on the other side of it to remind you about the giveaway and how you can enter and to give you the usual, the garden news, the running news, and of course, to thank all the patrons of the podcast. By the way, you can become a patron. Just go to plantyourself.com and look on the right sidebar for Patreon, and you can support the show as well. But I digress, because now it's time to bring you this phenomenal human being. So without further ado, Nathan Runkel, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's so exciting to have you. In fact, you're you you're one of the people that I didn't think I was big enough to get. Like, <laughs> you know, I have, I have like a wish list, and you were on the wish list, and then like, your publicist reached out, and I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. It's <laughs> um, an exciting so, day for both of us. <laughs> we'll see. So... Um, <laughs> You are the, the founder and, I guess, executive director of Mercy for Animals? Yeah, the, the founder and president of Mercy for Animals, yep. President. So maybe we'll, we'll start. You know, this is a, a podcast that's, that's it's focused on all things sort of health and wellness and environment and planet, focusing largely on plant-based nutrition. And I haven't gotten into the animal welfare, animal rights, animal protection that much. Um, and for, for various reasons. Um, but so for, for folks who may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about Mercy for Animals, just what, what it is today? Yeah, absolutely. So we are an international organization that is dedicated to preventing cruelty to farmed animals and promoting compassionate food choices and policies. And we carry out this work in six countries, Canada, U.S., Mexico, India, um, Hong Kong, Brazil, uh, through four program areas. The first is undercover investigations, uh, which is really what we're most known for, sending people into factory farms, slaughterhouses, hatcheries, livestock auctions, wired with hidden cameras to document the, the daily violence and brutality that the nearly nine billion uh, land animals uh, that are raised and killed for food are subjected to. Uh, our second program area is corporate outreach. So working with major corporations, uh, everyone from Walmart to McDonald's to Nestle, and really pushing them away from the worst factory farm abuses. Things like keeping mother pigs locked in gestation crates where they can't turn around. Things like keeping egg-lying hens locked in battery cages the size of a file cabinet with up to seven birds. Things like uh, getting baby calves out of veal crates where they also can't turn around or even lie down comfortably. Our third program area is legal advocacy. So pushing for stronger protection for farmed animals on both the state and federal level. Most people don't know that there's not a single federal law that provides protection to farmed animals during their life on the farm. One of the few federal laws that does exist is the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, which completely exempts birds, which make up over 95% of the animals raised and killed for food. And on a state level, um, most states have common farming exemptions, which essentially legalize 
uh, horribly cruel practices from mutilating animals without painkillers uh, to keeping them in tiny um, cages where they can't move, things that would be illegal to dogs or cats but are deemed legal for farmed animals. So we work to change that system. Uh, we also work to hold animal abusers accountable for violating state anti-cruelty statutes, like maliciously torturing farm animals. And our fourth program area is education. So really informing consumers about who farmed animals are, the fact that these animals have rich emotional lives, they're intelligent, they're sensitive, just like the dogs and cats so many of us love, they deserve our protection, and encourage people to move towards a plant-based diet. Um, eat less meat, more plants. Um, so those are the four program areas that uh, Mercy for Animals has to help animals. Great. And you started the organization when you were in high school, right? Yeah, when I was 15 years old, I started Mercy for Animals, yep. Right. So you've been on a lot of podcasts. And one, one of the things I always <laughs> you know, worry about is just having you like do a podcast that's already out there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to encourage people to, to, you know, first of all, you, you have a book that just came out on September 12th. Mm -hmm. It's all, it's called mercy for animals. That's right. So you're, uh, yeah, I, I consistent encourage branding. everyone to, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. And I, I, I hope any listener um, that's interested, will will pick it up. It's, it's partly my story of, uh, Growing up on a small crop farm in rural Ohio, I was born on a couch in a city of, well, a, a village of less than 2,000 people. I was slated to be a fifth generation farmer. Um, but it tells my story of um, sort of awakening to the, the plight of, of, of animals used for food and um, becoming vegetarian, becoming vegan, and then starting Mercy for Animals. Um, as you said, when I was 15, uh, in this, this farming community, and it, it really follows um, my path, uh, but it also is the story of our brave undercover investigators who do some of the work that I was uh, describing before. Uh, it talks a lot about um, many of the biggest successes that we've been able to uh, accomplish. It, it tells personal stories of animals to um, inside of, of these factory farms, some of which we've been able to, to rescue, many that we haven't. Um, it talks about the emotional and intellectual lives of these animals. And we talk about the future of food um, and how we can, uh, you know, look at solving not only the issue of industrial animal agriculture, but how are we going to feed 9 billion people by 2050 um, on this globe? And then it ends with uh, practical tips that every, everyone can uh, implement into their, their lives to, to help animals. So it's a book I'm really proud of, and um, I hope that it will help inspire a, a new generation of people to advocate on behalf of animals and that they'll find it entertaining and moving and inspiring and, and helpful on a practical level as well. Yeah. And I got to say, I got, I got a, a PDF copy, um, you know, pre pre publication and it had the words do not distribute uh, watermarked <laughs> over every page. So I figured I would just sort of like breeze through it and take some notes. And I found myself, sobbing, shaking. It took me twice as long to read as I had mm. figured based on my experience. Yeah. It is a phenomenally important book. And thank God it's got good stories in it and pictures <laughs> and, you know, and sort of interest and intrigue because it is a very compelling, challenging topic. And you know, and we we can go into a little bit of sort of my reactions and your reactions to those reactions, 
Um, yeah. But, you yeah. know, for anyone, like, just hit pause, go to Amazon, or better better yet, your local bookshop, and, and buy or order Mercy for Animals. It's, you know, it, it really is, rip, you know, ripping a, a Band-Aid off the, this incredibly large festering wound in our in our culture. Um, yeah, it is. Um, you know, it, it, it's sort of a no-holds-bar look at... Um, the issue facing farmed animals and it's, it is story based. Um, I think it's really important to, um, to talk about an issue that can seem so massive. Um, you know, when we talk about 9 billion animals, uh, used for food every year in the U S alone, I mean, none of us can truly comprehend what 9 billion individual animals looks like. Um, but each one of these animals has their own story. And, you know, I tried in the book to, to capture just a few of those stories and to also capture the story of the investigators. You know, these are people that operate in the shadows um, necessarily to be able to um, go undetected and, and go um, and penetrate these very secretive industries. And, um, you know, their, their work has led to, you know, just massive change uh, and, and, and really helped catapult um, and drive um, so many of the 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 changes to protect animals that we've seen. So this is really the first book that gives people such an, an intimate, um, detailed account of what it's like for these investigators. And you know, as you said, it's um, th- there are definitely um, you know stories in the book that uh, that don't shy away from the reality. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's necessary, as you said, to pull the bandaid off and for us to really have these conversations. I think that's what drives change. But, you know, I, I hope that ultimately people will um, walk away from the book feeling empowered and inspired. I, I talk about um, stories of transformation, um, you know, people that used to be farmers that, that, that raised animals for slaughter that became um, animal advocates. I, I talk about people, you know, finding their unique voices. Um, I talk about a vegan race car driver that uses her platform to to promote vegan eating to NASCAR fans. Um, so, you know, I, I say with this work, I see the darkest side of humanity and I see the cruelty and violence that we're capable of inflicting on animals. But I also see the brightest side of humanity. I see how kind and generous and selfless and dedicated uh, people can be to helping um, animals and and farmed animals, those who are just so weak and vulnerable to cruelty. Um, So I, I hope that, that people will, um, will just be moved in, in in a whole host of ways by the book. And, and um, like I said, walk away inspired to do more. Great. So I'd love to dive into some of the things in the book. Now, you, you've told your yeah. story a lot, but I would love for you to just share briefly the, the story of the piglet that, that really catalyzed your life. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was 15, uh, this is back in 1999, our local high school, uh, Graham High, um, had an agriculture program. As I said, I was in a village of less than 2,000 people, so the high school uh, populated mostly by, by farmers and their, and their students. Um, so there's an agriculture class taught by um, a man named Steve Jenkins. And it came to the point in the curriculum where they were going to do a dissection project. So Mr. Jenkins decided that he would kill uh, about half a dozen piglets 
on his farm and bring them to school the next morning um, to be used in this project. Uh, Mr. Jenkins was a pig farmer. He raised over 10,000 pigs, so a large operation. The morning of the project, he arrived to the school with a bucket that had um, you know, half a dozen piglets in it. One of the students um, walked over and looked in the bucket and noticed that there was a piglet who was still alive. She was standing on top of the other piglets. Um, Another student who did part-time work on Jenkins Pig Farm walked over, reached into the bucket, grabbed this piglet by her hind legs, and slammed her headfirst into the ground in front of all the other students. Um, many of, of these students were just horrified. They, they grabbed this piglet, who was still alive, left the classroom, went down the hallway to another teacher named Molly Fearing, who was known as being the vegetarian who cared about animals. She was a first year um, teacher at this school. Molly took this dying piglet, left the school, went to a local veterinarian and had um, this just this, this poor piglet euthanized. Um, there was nothing they could do to help her at this point. Her skull was fractured. She was bleeding out of her mouth. She was vocalizing just in, in terrible distress. Molly's next stop was to the sheriff's department and she filed an animal cruelty complaint, um, and there were cruelty charges filed against uh, Mr. Jenkins. It became a big deal in this local um, community. It was in the newspaper and um, on the local news, and it went to trial, and the very first day of that trial, the judge dismissed the case. And he did that because in Ohio, like most states, if something is considered standard agricultural practice, it is exempt from cruelty prosecution. And the practice of slamming baby piglets headfirst into the ground is considered standard within the pork industry. It is so common that it has, they have a term for it. It's called thumping. And it happens on pig farms across the country every single day. Um, so that case illustrated to me that there needed to be an organization that would work on behalf of farmed animals. It was clear to me that had this been a puppy or a kitten that someone had brought to school and this animal had been slammed into the ground, um, the cruelty conviction uh, would have would have stuck. Um, that the, the student and the teacher involved would have been referred for psychiatric evaluation. They would have been prevented from owning or interacting with animals again. Um, but because it was a farmed animal, because it was a pig, um, the rule book was completely different. The standard was completely different. Um, and, and to me, that was a real injustice. You know, it's um, the way in which we view farmed animals and treat them is really about us. It's not about them. Um, they have the same ability to not only feel pain, but emotions and companionship and love and joy and excitement and fear and stress in the same way as dogs and cats do. Um, yet in our country, we have two very separate set of rules and expectations with how these animals are treated. You know, half of um, companion animals in, in this country will receive gifts this holiday season. They're considered members of our family. We will send billions of dollars to take care of them. But, but, but pigs, for example, more intelligent than dogs, just as sensitive, um, they are condemned to a life of just absolute deprivation and cruelty. And, and to me, that's, um, that's unacceptable.
Now, you had um, been involved in, in sort of animal rights protests prior to starting Mercy for Animals, right? I think you're right. In 1997, you went to a protest in Washington, D.C.? That's right. That's right. Yeah. When I, when I was 11 years old, um, so four years before starting Mercy for Animals, um, I heard the term animal rights activist for the very first time. Um, you know, growing up on a, on a farm, I, you know, both of my uncles were hunters, trappers, fishermen. I talk in the book about the first and last hunting trip, um, that I took with my uncle when I was, you know, six or seven years old. And, um, you know, I just always had this natural fascination and empathy for, for other animals. And it was my, my companion animals that really started to teach me that, that all, all animals, um, you know, have, have the same spark for life and the same will to live and, and crave freedom in the same way. Um, so this was always sort of my base. Um, and I would see animals being shot or skinned alive or fish being scaled um, when I was young. And it would always feel just absolutely wrong um, to me. I'd always have such a visceral reaction. But no one in, in my family, no one in my community um, would, would validate the notion that, yes, we should be protecting other animals instead of abusing them. So it was when I was 11 years old, we were sitting at the kitchen table and this short, probably 30 second um, news story came on about people protesting fur at the local mall um, in Dayton, Ohio. And I remember them showing footage of, of, of animals caught in leg hold traps and, and beavers and, and traps drowning underwater. And, um, you know, again, that was the first time the first time I heard the word animal rights activist and it stuck in my mind. And I remember thinking, wow, there are people who are taking these these feelings that I have and doing something about it. They are speaking up on behalf of animals. So that planted a seed. And, uh, you know, probably five months later, April came around and I knew that there was an Earth Day celebration at the same mall in Dayton. So I you know, begged my mom to take me and she did. And one of the booths that were set up there was from an animal protection organization. In fact, the same one that had organized the fur protest. So I picked up brochures on factory farming and learned for the first time about these veal crates and gestation crates and battery cages and read these brochures on the car ride home. And by the time we pulled into our lane um, back at our farm, I was a vegetarian and I told my mom that, you know, I'm not going to pay other people to abuse animals um, anymore and, and that I, I wouldn't eat meat. So that, that was the beginning. And of course this was before social media, before YouTube, um, you know, so I was very isolated. I went to the local libraries. I would get the few books that they had. I would write letters for information um, and, and, and did what I could as an 11 year old, um, in a farming community to start to learn more about um, animal protection. And then when I was 13, I convinced my parents to drive to Washington, D.C. to take me to an animal rights conference. Um, so it was, it was sort of a slow burn, but it was this incident um, in my backyard at our local high school that really propelled me to say, I need to do more um, and, and found the organization. Right. So you, you started out just being, you know, aware of, the, of your inner feelings, that something was wrong, yeah. they weren't validated. Then you found a group of people who, for the first time, validated that, that like what you were feeling was a thing. But you also write mm -hmm. that the D.C. protest was ineffective. And I'm really curious what you <laughs> learned from the, 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 you know, the initial efforts, 
that you witnessed and partook of because you've you've kind of become like the the reason you're so important is not that just that you're passionate and well-spoken and ethical but incredibly effective so i'm curious how these early experiences of seeing things that weren't so effective um educated and informed you as you as you grew into an activist yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I, I attended my first protest 20 years ago, um, and I have, I've been to so many protests, I probably can't even count that high, to be honest. Um, so, it, you know, it, it has certainly been a journey. And, um, you know, I, I am now a firm believer that we need to be more than right, we need to be effective. And we need to, to win hearts and minds, not arguments and debates. So, you know, I think that so many um, advocates, and, and this, this is true for animal advocates and, and environmental advocates and LGBT advocates and, and uh, you know, just all types of, of equality activists um, are driven by passion and are fueled oftentimes, at least in the beginning, by, by anger. And, you know, rightfully so. There's a lot to be angry about and to be, um, to be sad about. Um, but we need to channel that in an effective way. And, you know, for me, um, my journey started uh, from information and being offered information and then, and then gradually support. I don't know many advocates who, um, who, who, who got to where they are because they were shamed or guilted or yelled at. Um, so I think it's really important that we think critically about how we are um, advocating on behalf of, of animals or, or on any other topic. Um, because oftentimes what might feel good for us, what might feel like it sort of releases the pressure valve and we get an opportunity to yell and scream and vent, isn't what's most effective. Um, so for me, it's been a 20-year journey of you know, doing all sorts of protests and actions and, and, and realizing that, that much of it um, wasn't having the impact that I wanted um, and, and really sort of every year um, tweaking and refining and being very honest with myself about, is this working? Um, looking at, at data. I mean, now we have a statistician on staff now at Mercy for Animals. We really dive into data with, with messaging and communications and, you know, we really use metrics to evaluate the tactics that, 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 that we're using on, on a whole host of levels. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, in, in a really general sense, um, that, that's, that's an important way to, to look at our, our activism. Um, and, and it has helped inform, you know, the work that I do and the organization does in so many ways. And, and, and oftentimes what's most effective isn't the most glamorous. It doesn't you know, feel um, as exciting uh, in, in the moment. But um, as I said, animals need us to be effective. So um, you know, it, it, it helped lead me down a path of doing a lot more educational work, um, which at first for Mercy for Animals was standing on street corners and on college campuses and outside of music festivals and just passing out literature on factory farming. And then we sort of evolved to bring these homemade contraptions where we play video footage on street corners out. But now with social media and, and, and again, YouTube and Facebook, we 
the floodgates have opened. We can reach people in a much larger way. You know, we now reach a quarter billion people through our videos every year at Mercy for Animals, um, which is a far cry from when I was standing on street corners hoping that, you know, we'd get a couple dozen people to stop. So, you know, we always have to be open to change. Um, and, and so those are some of the, the lessons that I've learned um, over the years. Right. And I guess another big difference, in addition to the scale, is that the videos that are on social media, people have a choice whether to watch them That's or right. not. So, so they actually are yeah. pressing play. They are agreeing to something as opposed yeah. to, you know, the, the, the typical sort of standing on the street corner or screaming at people for buying meat at Whole yeah. Foods or, or spraying, right. you know, like <clears throat> you're, you're imposing yourself as, as opposed to inviting people. Yeah, and the great thing with with social media and, and video sharing is then people can choose to share it. Um, you know, it, the 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 ripple effect grows. And you know, Mercy for Animals, we we produce about four videos a week. Um, and people that 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 aren't familiar, they should definitely follow us on on all the social media platforms. I mean, we we certainly release these these um, these hard hitting investigations, but we also do a ton of vegan cooking videos and in spotlights on um, vegan restaurants and bakeries. And, you know, it's um, most of the content actually is, is very uplifting and, and heartwarming and, you know, um, showing how smart and playful pigs are, for example, and, um, and all of that. So, yeah, I do hope that, that, that people will, will follow us. They'll take a look at these videos and that they'll, they'll share the ones that really resonate with them um, because social media really has, um, leveled the playing field in many ways. You know, I, I talk in the book about when, when I first started Mercy for Animals, I mean, we would, we would do almost anything to get the media's attention for just a second so that we could get, you know, the, that 30 second clip on the news, similar to the one that opened my eyes. But today we don't need to do that. Um, you know, through, through social media, we can reach people like never before. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that I talk about in terms of how people can get involved is how to be an effective e-advocate. Um, and, you know, I, I, I talk about uh, e-activism driving um, real change and how, you know, big companies are, are now very much tuning in to, um, to social media, to the conversations happening on social media and how that is helped drive some international policy change that affects millions and millions of animals every year. Right. See, there's, what I hear from a lot of people is a kind of uh, turning up their nose at the idea of you know, clicktivism or e-activism as being uncommitted, as not being the real thing. Your, your, your data-driven, statistics-informed um, models say otherwise, that, that we are being effective. We're, we can be effective on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I think I, for, for a period of time, was probably in that same camp of turning up the nose to what some people call slacktivism. And, um, you know, but the data is very different. Um, and it shows that it can have an absolute huge impact. And we've seen it firsthand at Mercy for Animals, just in terms of of, of, of helping to inspire people to change their diet in terms of pushing big companies to make changes. Um, so yeah, people absolutely should be involved. And as I said, in the book, I talk a little bit about how to do that perhaps more effectively. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to stop there. Um, it doesn't mean that that's the only avenue. 
um, available for people, but it can be a very important avenue. Um, you know, one of the, the things I talk about in the book is finding your unique voice. Um, and I think that 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 advocacy work um, isn't a one size fits all. Um, I always tell people, people always ask me, well, what, what can I do? Um, and, uh, you know, I always say, well, that the, the answer can be very different for each person. Um, you know, we people have different personality types. Some people are extremely extrovert and they love, you know, presenting in front of large groups. They love speaking to people. Others are, you know, brilliant introverts that are great at writing, who are talented artists, who are, you know, incredible um, chefs, who, you know, are bankers. Really, because the animal protection movement is so diverse and we are looking really for societal change, we need people that are skilled and talented and connected in really every area that you could imagine. So, you know, I always say, find out what your skills are and find a, a unique way to marry that your passion uh, for helping animals. And, you know, the sky's the limit. It really is about, about creativity. And, and like I said, I think Lonnie um, Munter, the vegan race car driver is a great example of that. You know, some people would say, well, you know, what's the commonality of being a race car driver and being vegan? Well, she uses it as a platform. She's actually had vegan themed cars that she's driven um, to reach, you know, tens of millions of people in many ways um, in an audience that isn't as exposed to this issue as others um, would be. So, you know, I think that that's really the key to sustainability as well um, is to find your unique voice in a way that stimulates you. Um, you know, if you're an artist, you can use your platform in so many brilliant ways to um, inspire people to think about um, these issues in a way that they have never done before. Um, I talk about, um, you know, uh, people that have, have started vegan uh, food companies, including one of the former executives of Burger King, um, who said that he sort of started to see that he was on the dark side of food and he started Sweet Earth, um, which now is a, is a vegan food company um, or vegetarian food company that has products um, all over the place. So I think there's always an opportunity, number one, to pivot in your life um, uh, and, and to transform and to move towards kindness. And there's always an opportunity to use your unique place and perspective um, on the world to um, to bring about change. Right. And, you know, when you, I'm, I'm recalling when you talked about, you know, it's it's natural to to feel the passion, to feel the anger and yeah. you need to, you know, we need to be more effective and you can do that by having statisticians and being data driven and being strategic. But when push comes yeah. to shove, when you're in a conversation, it's, you know, your character and your capabilities as, as a human soul that are going to determine yeah. whether you're going to fly off the handle at someone or not. And I'm sure you've seen it, too. I've seen plenty of conversations with with vegans and animal rights activists who are creating more opposition than existed yeah. before how did what was your um trajectory and the trajectory of people you've you've seen and worked with intimately to kind of develop themselves to not be you know angry uh or or, or shaming or 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 guilting or yelling but but, you know, engaging in much more effective, more Gandhi-esque, Martin Luther King-esque yeah. approaches that are that are way more effective statistically. How, how do, how do yeah. folks go about that journey? Yeah, I, I mean, 
first of all, I think it's important for for us to remember um, the what it was like for us before we were vegan, when we were pre-vegan um, or pre-vegetarian or even just pre-aware of how animals were suffering. I mean, to me, it's kind of remarkable how quickly um, people can sort of get amnesia and forget about the fact that, that they were someone that, that you might be having a conversation with, you know, a few months ago or a few years ago and how sort of righteous and judgmental, um, uh, you know, advocates can get so quickly. Um, when again, they were in that position not long ago. So, you know, for me, I think part of it is, uh, you know, some people like to say, instead of people who aren't vegan, uh, consider them pre-vegans. Um, so I think a lot of it is, 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 is the perception that we have of the people that we are talking with. And, you know, it's important to me to, to, to really remember that, that, that everyone considers themselves a good person. And, you know, everyone uh, considers themselves someone who wants to do what's right. Most people want to do what they consider to be fair and compassionate. Um, and, you know, we need to, uh, to, to honor that that, that, that is um, their identity and, and where they're at, as opposed to us coming to conversations, you know, with, with judgment and, and shame and, and guilt um, towards that person. And again, I understand the feelings, uh, you know, it can, it, it, it can feel like this is an urgent issue and animals are suffering now and I'm their only voice. So I need to tell it like it is. Um, and, and there is truth to that, but we also need to, to do it in a way where those that we are speaking with can hear it. And they, and a lot of it is, is just the way in which we talk to people, um, you know, sharing, I statements, you know, I, I found this, um, you know, footage, uh, you know, I, I found factory farming to, to be really against, against my, my, my morals and my ethics. And I decided that, that it wasn't something that, that I wanted to participate in. And I have found, you know, um, vegan eating to be delicious and accessible and healthy. And, and I found that my life has improved. People can't argue with your experience. Um, but they, they hear that experience, um, where if you have a conversation saying you are supporting the torture of animals and you are the reason why these animals are dying, and you need to change what you are doing. Um, it's <laughs> few people will, um, really receive that, um, in a positive way. They will immediately get defensive. Um, so we can share the same information and we can have the same, uh, the, the same substance of a conversation, but the way in which we do it um, can have really a dramatic impact. Um, I always talk about the importance of being a joyful vegan and leading by example. Um, you know, if, if people think that, you know, becoming vegan or an animal advocate means that you're going to have to be angry and depressed and deprived yeah, um, sign me all up. the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where where is the sign up sheet? Um, you know, most people want to live happy lives. Most people want to, you know, have lives that are rich in connection and joy and love. Um, and and we do too. Um, and, and to me, being vegan is actually the ultimate expression of love. Um, it is a way of of living. Um, you know, a reflection of our deepest values. So I think there's a lot of different ways of talking about veganism and, 
And sure, it's against cruelty, but, but, but more importantly, it's for compassion. So I think how we choose to just, um, you know, live our lives and the examples that, that we make in doing so um, are very profound um, and, and, and people notice that. So, so being a joyful vegan and, and just offering, um, you know, food. A lot of times people will only talk about the why, like you should do this because of antibiotic use, you should do this because of the environment. And this is, these are important conversations to have, but we also need to be talking about the how because there are a lot of people who understand that factory farming is, is a, a terrible thing. They understand that they're eating too much meat, but they don't know where to start. They don't know what to eat on a daily basis. So we need to be um, you know, beacons of information um, to, to let them know, hey, I totally get it. I was lost in the beginning. I didn't know where to start. Um, but what I found was that you know, um, I found a lot of vegan options at Thai restaurants and Ethiopian restaurants and Mexican. And, you know, hey, you might not know, but like a lot of what you're eating is vegan or could easily be made vegan. So we just we need to offer support. And that's a big part of what Mercy for Animals does is sure we expose the cruelty and it's important to drive change. But a lot of what we do is also giving people the tools and resources they need. We have a website, chooseveg.com. We have a free veg starter guide. We produce, you know, the video content and, and resources um, to really help direct people, you know, down that, 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 that path of, of a compassionate lifestyle. Um, you know, Melanie Joy has spoken about and written now three books um, about carnism, which is this invisible uh, belief that it's okay to eat certain animals. And I think she does a really excellent job of, of pointing out that, that eating eating animals, especially eating a very small um, number of species out of all the species on the planet is a belief system. And certainly the more you get out of, of the Western world, you see how that belief system can vary um, in other parts of the world. Some, you know, it, it's, it's considered totally normal and acceptable to, to eat dogs and cats. And, you know, others, cows are considered sacred and, and, and absolutely, you know, should not be slaughtered at all. So these are just, um, beliefs that, that people have, but it, especially in Western cultures, we just assume that eating meat is normal, natural, and necessary when we of course know that that's not, not the case. Um, and oftentimes in these conversations, you know, people sort of, uh, immediately puts people into three different categories. One is that you are a, a hero or a victim or a perpetrator. Um, and, and it can be difficult when you're talking to, to sort of a pre-vegan or a meat eater to say, okay, well, I don't view you as a hero. Um, you don't seem like you're a victim, so you must be a perpetrator. Um, and, you know, conversations and how you interact with someone who you view as a perpetrator um, can be, you know, far more hostile and accusatory. So we need to sort of, um, I think, take a more holistic approach to how we view others and that they are, they've really bought in on bought into this notion of carnism unconsciously. You know, this is, we're raised, um, you know, believing that, that we, we have to eat turkey for Thanksgiving. We need to have, you know, uh, barbecues that have meat, you know, it, like animal products are so woven into our culture and our upbringing and, you know, memories with our families. So asking someone to reconsider that and to go down a path that changes um, their, their, their diet is, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big thing um, to talk about. So we need to, to understand that. And as I said, I think be joyful reflections of what that lifestyle is and, um, you know, be as supportive as possible to those that are, that are interested um, in considering that journey. Right. And I've, I have loved that model of, I've, I've called it a sort of rescuer, victim and perpetrator, but mm-hmm. he, he, hero makes sense too. Um, and the interesting thing I find about that is that the roles are extremely fungible that the minute mm-hmm. you see someone else as a perpetrator and you start haranguing them, then all of a sudden they're the victim. You see yourself That's as the right. hero. They see you as the perpetrator. And you're just, right. you're just, you're contributing to the same, the energy behind that story, right? Yeah. If, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's the details of we're cruel to animals, we're cruel to each other, we're cruel to the poor, we're cruel to anyone who's different. And where that comes from, is this sort of oppositional model that we that we have in our heads, which I, want, I wanted to ask you about because, you know, you talk about not shaming people. And yet there's a there's a, a story in your book about you are doing some undercover filming at the pork producers. And, yeah. and one of one of your uh, your undercover folks, Amy, actually gets on stage and uh, pr- um, proclaims a toast and then proceeds to, you know, in in, in her own words, shame on you. And I'm wondering, yeah. is that something you would do now? Was that, was that designed, yeah. you know, how does <laughs> yeah, that, how does that fit into how you now see advocacy? Yeah. I mean, this, this is a story that I would say fits into um, what we were talking about earlier of this 20 year journey of, um, of advocacy work, um, you know, starting, at protests when I was 13 and having people throw chicken bones at us and spit at us and, you know, this evolution. I mean, we used to do uh, protests against the fur industry where people would, would wear fur coats and literally put paper bags on their head that, that spelled out the word shame. So, um, you know, uh, and, and I would definitely put this in that, that same category as, um, you know, I think all of our life stories include things that now we look back and we say, Hey, that wasn't, that's not something that is in line with my current values or my, my current understanding of the world. Um, and I would, I would certainly um, put that, that story and that tactic um, in that, uh, in that bucket as well. Gotcha. Um, and, and yet <laughs> one of, you know, so two of your buckets are, you know, this undercover investigation and legal advocacy. Mm-hmm. And there's wonderful yeah. stories about, you know, your your uh, your crack team of investigators and this amazing lawyer and other folks that you've worked with. And and kind of the legal system is all about guilt and judgment. How do you maintain yeah. how, how, you know, how do you maintain the balance between saying you know, everyone's, you know, uh, a pre-vegan, everyone has the potential to be good, to be transformed and yet operate within yeah. a system in which adjudication is is due to, you know, wrongdoing? Yeah, absolutely. This this is a great question. Um you know, we we also we also live in a in a world that's not black or white, but there's a lot of gray area. And, you know, for, for us, um, legal, legal advocacy um, I- includes that. When we do these investigations, a lot of what we uncover are these institutionalized systemic um, abuses, you know, keeping animals in cages where they can't turn around, mutilating animals without painkillers, grinding up baby chicks while they're still alive. 
these are these are the standard practices that would be illegal if the victims were dogs or cats, but it's considered you know good business um, if if farmed animals are are the victims of it. So th- these are the these are the practices that we really um, seek to change the most because this is where we can um, affect the lives of, of the most animals. But when we do investigations, you know, our investigators, they, they let their cameras roll and they document what happens there. And oftentimes there will be malicious and sadistic, um, cruelty towards these animals. Um, things that do rise to the level of being a violation of, of anti-cruelty statutes, things like workers taking crowbars and beating cows over the head, you know, 40 times or stabbing them with pitchforks or breaking their tails to get them to move. Um, And when we do document this, we really have, uh, in many ways, a legal obligation to hand this evidence over to law enforcement um, along with the rest of the case. Um, And if we don't do that, we are... um, in, in certain situations, sort of legally at risk ourselves for um, for not reporting um, that abuse. So, um, you know, we we do what needs to be done um, when working within the the legal system. Uh, at the same time, you know, our, our main focus is is pushing these companies um, rather than than the individual workers. In most cases, the companies themselves um, to be held accountable and for them. To, to to really change their their overall overall practices, um, we understand that these things aren't isolated incidents. And and I talk in the book a lot about um, how most of the workers uh, inside of these facilities are are really victims themselves. Many of them are undocumented workers. Um, they take these jobs out of desperation. You know, this is few people um, grow up uh, in in the U.S. Um, saying that they want to work in a slaughterhouse one day. Um, these are dirty, dangerous, demoralizing, dehumanizing um, jobs. So m- much of the workforce falls to these undocumented workers who take these jobs out of desperation to to provide for their families. And in doing so, um, because they're not citizens, they really have few channels um, to speak up on their own behalf, you know, slaughterhouses are one of the most dangerous jobs in in this country. You know, people get body parts cut off by machinery. They get carpal tunnel. They get, you know, knocked down by by animals. It's it's a terrible working environment. So, you know, I talk about that in the book. Um, I talk about um, the the physical um, struggle and pain that many of these these workers um, endure, but also the the emotional um, distress that is oftentimes caused by working in factory farms and slaughterhouses. So, you know, this is a big part of why Mercy for Animals works to promote plant-based eating and cellular agriculture and alternatives to, to animal agriculture, because um, not only is it really inherently abusive and exploitive for animals to, to be used in these systems, but, but there's a, a real human toll and cost as well. So, so that's always um, at the forefront of, of sort of the society that, that we are advocating for and pushing for. And, and to be honest, you know, working for meaningful, meaningful world change within a broken system is difficult work. It's difficult work. It can be, it can be messy work. Um, but we do the best that we can, um, to be honest about this, the situation 
and um, you know help help drive change that that really has has a a, a big picture um, view as well. Right, and I loved the the way you framed that discussion of you know there's no such thing as animal cruelty without human cruelty. There's no such mm-hmm. thing as animal abuse without human abuse. I'm thinking about a, an essay that I read from. Uh, a book I think it was written in the 70s called uh, About Looking by John Berger. He has a mm. chapter called Why Look at Animals, and he points out historically that however we treat our domesticated animals this century yeah. is how we're going to treat our people in the future. From yeah. you know, from using them as as pack mules to confinement to genetic testing. That that basically whatever we can, whatever we becomes. Um, permissible or thinkable around animals, it ends up, we end up doing it to ourselves. And there's really no, no distinction. Yeah. I, and you know, the, the famous uh, quote attributed to Gandhi, you can judge the moral progress of a nation by the way it treats its animals. And, you know, I think that that's very true. And, you know, the flip side to, um, you know, uh, a society going down a path of abusing animals and, and what that means for people. The flip side is a society that respects animals and is moving towards a more compassionate re- uh, relationship with animals. And, you know, I oftentimes talk about if we are able to extend our circle of compassion to include animals and, ex- and, and ensure that that circle of compassion includes farmed animals or currently farmed animals, you know, that says a lot about who we are as people. That says a lot about who we are as a society. You know, how we treat those who are weak and vulnerable and at our mercy, um, you know, I, I think says a lot about our core values. And if we are able to live lives and, 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 and build a society where, you know, cows and pigs and chickens are treated with respect, certainly that would include uh, our fellow, um, humans, you know, they, we, we talk about the sort of moral and ethical evolution of, um, human societies. And, you know, first it, it starts with self and then family and then tribe and then, um, you know, nation and, and race and religion and, 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 and et cetera, this sort of this wave and ripple effect outward, um, as our understanding, um, and as our needs, uh, you know, are, are, are satisfied, we can and, and are, and, and, and history is a lesson in this for the most part, um, continuing to, to bring, um, quote unquote, others and other groups um, into the sphere of consideration. And I think that the, the time has certainly come for that to include animals and including farmed animals. I think it is a necessary and important part of, of human ethical and, and moral um, evolution. Right. Which which um, brings me to a question that I wrote down early in in the book. I didn't think we necessarily would get to it, but I was really curious about your choice of the word mercy. And I was thinking, like, mm. why not choose justice for animals or freedom for mm. animals? But the word mercy is not about the animals, but about the humans. What what made you yeah. choose that word? And is you know have you kept it because of convenience of branding, or is it still still something <laughs> that you think is it was the right choice? Yeah, well, I think I think justice for animals and freedom for animals um, would also be great names for organizations. And in fact, I believe that there are organizations <laughs> with those names. Um, you know, I 
I still believe um, that Mercy uh, for Animals is is a really appropriate name. I think it's a powerful name. Um, the truth of the matter is, farmed animals are at our mercy. Um, you know, I, I think that 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 some people would say, well, you know, mercy inherently means that that we have power and that 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 you know, it just what the meaning of that is, and and that is true. Um, you know, we are at a stage where we are confining animals. We are we are manipulating every moment of their lives. We are manipulating their bodies. We are genetically engineering these animals, many of them becoming prisoners of their own bodies. We are deciding when they live and when they die. So it is an accurate reflection of our current relationship with these animals. They are weak and vulnerable to us. Um, on on a large scale, and we can choose cruelty or we can choose mercy. And um, you know, I think that choosing mercy not only um, spares and improves the lives of these animals, but I think that that we as humans benefit from exercising this mercy and compassion as well. And what one of the the parts of the book that that affected me most emotionally was my empathy for your undercover workers yeah, who yeah. who went in. And, you know, I'd never thought about this at all before. I thought they just sort of, you know, got in, got the footage, got out. They were in danger. But it never occurred to me that they had to spend weeks or sometimes months doing yeah. the things that they were, you know, you, you were trying to uh, uncover, that they had to yeah. kill the animals in 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 cruel ways. They had to debeak and uh, hang the turkeys up while alive. These you know forty fifty pound birds whose you know limbs would break from their own weight. And yeah. I got to be thinking like if I did that, I would probably stop being an animal rights activist, and I would probably become like <laughs> like I would lose lose my capacity. I'd either go nuts or I would lose my capacity to give a shit. And, and in fact, at the end of the book, you have someone talking about this. When you, it's called uh, perpetrator-induced traumatic stress. And right. I just, I, I'd love for you to talk about what it was like to send people in. You, you did some early, I guess, and then I think I don't know how many you've 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 done lately of you, know, you going in. I guess you're, you're you're pretty hard to go undercover now because you're a, a known <laughs> entity. But yeah, what was it yeah. like to to witness that and to to, you know, to send people to that kind of war. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, I, I say that investigators are the, the hidden heroes or the unsung heroes of the animal protection movement. And, um, you know, that's not, that, that's not a description that I um, put out into the world lightly. Um, and I describe them and feel this way about them um, for very good reason. Um, and I, you know, many of these, these investigators, you know, Pete, who is a big focus of the book, um, I consider very much to be, you know, a, a dear friend and a brother to me. Um, I've known him for, for over a decade. Um, and, 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 you know, Cody and Liz and the others that are, are profiled in the book. Um, this is really difficult work. Um, you know, we have only about 1% of the people who contact Mercy for Animals and say and apply to be an investigator will actually make it into the field. Once people really start to understand that this is not 
a glamorous sort of James Bond um, position. This is rolling up your sleeve, leaving your friends and your family behind, going and living out of a dumpy motel out in the middle of nowhere by yourself for sometimes months on end, um, you know, shoveling manure all day, putting animals into cages, um, depending on the job, putting animals on slaughter lines. Um, this is not only physically difficult work and in some ways damaging work, but it is emotionally traumatic work. There is just, there's no way around that. As you said, it is like going to war. It's like, it's like war um, journalists, um, you know, going and being on the front line and, you know, seeing people die in front of them. Um, there's no other way to, to do these employment-based investigations. And, you know, our investigators can't go and pretend to be employees and they can't, you know, just pick up a, a broom and pretend to be sweeping in the corner. Um, you know, they, they have to, to be there and they have to work. And their jobs can vary dramatically, but sometimes they, they are right there um, on, on the line. They are, you know, moving these animals. They are doing this work. And they're always very careful not to engage in illegal abuse. You know, they do everything in their power to do their work as kind and as gently as they can um, for the animals and never to, you know, um, to, 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 to be engaged in, in malicious abuse. But it is an, there's inherent, um, you know, suffering uh, that, that goes hand in hand with, with doing these jobs and, you know, working in a, in a, in a pig factory farm, we tell the story of Liz, you know, having to, to cut the tails off of these piglets and how difficult that is, you know, morally and emotionally um, to do as an, as an investigator and always having to, and not being able to rescue these animals that are suffering right in front of you, um, which is all of them, all of them are suffering. So it is, it is a morally conflicting place to be. Um, and it's so important for our investigators to remember that what, though they might not be able to help the, the individual animal in front of them, their work and them keeping their composure and being able to, to finish their case can help change the future for countless other animals that, that have yet to be born. And through their sacrifice and through their dedication, um, we can help push for change that will mean that the animals that, that come ahead will hopefully um, lead lives that are filled with less misery and less suffering and more freedom. And ultimately, it will lead to the day when no animal will need to be or will be um, raised and killed in these horrific, horrific manners. Um, but yes, I, I agree with you. I think that that's some of the most um, compelling um, narrative in the book is, is really getting um, a look at, at the daily struggles that these investigators face. And, um, you know, I, I talk about the, the perpetration-induced traumatic stress um, form of PTSD that not only investigators suffer from, but but other workers in factory farms and slaughterhouses suffer from. You know, a, a lot of these 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 workers um, they take these jobs out of desperation, so they they care about animals too. Um, you know, they don't want to go and slit the throats of animals all day. It's just what 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 they the jobs that they take. And we oftentimes will see um, high rates of alcoholism, drug abuse. Um, inside of these facilities, you know, forms of self-medication. Um, and I talk about 
some psychologists that did uh, a review of communities where slaughterhouses are based and um, looking at the, the Sinclair effect, a theory put forward over 100 years ago by Upton Sinclair that um, in, in communities where slaughterhouses are based, oftentimes there would be much higher rates of violent crime, including homicides that are carried out in the same manner in which animals are slaughtered inside of the local slaughterhouse. So, you know, I think we really have to ask ourselves, do slaughterhouses and factory farms that not only support violence towards animals, but also um, are, are so horrific that they breed PTSD and propel further violence towards humans, do these places have a place in a civilized society? Do slaughterhouses belong in a moral and ethical society? And to me, the answer is very clear. It's no. You know, people aren't going to, um, you know, pick apples or, 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 or berries or harvest corn in fields and coming back with PTSD. You know, we don't, we don't, um, we don't go to tofu factories and, um, you know, see people needing to self-medicate um, in order to produce the <laughs> tofu. So, um, you know, I think we really need to, to view this as part of, uh, of, of this abusive system. Right. I mean, when I, when I looked up uh, the PITS, the, the perpetration-induced traumatic stress, I looked at the um, list of symptoms, and I kind of feel like mm. that is a, a, a sort of global bucket diagnosis for our society. You know, alcohol, yeah. cocaine abuse, opioid abuse, alienation, hypervigilance, sense of disintegration. Mm -hmm. That's all of us. Mm -hmm. That's that's mm -hmm. the world. You know, that, that's the the background, the emotional and psychic background of our lives. And I think you can you can trace it to a lot of things. But factory yeah. farms are are I mean, it's it's what we eat. Right. It's yeah. it's where we get yeah. our calories is the yeah. ground zero of, of perpetration. Hey, I mean, as they say, you, you are what you eat. And, um, you know, if, if, if that is true, um, we are a lot of fear and a lot of sadness, um, you know, to, to, to look into the eyes of animals that are waiting, um, to be killed or are snapped upside down and being moved towards, um, you know, the electrified water. Um, these animals are terrified. Um, and, and that is, that is how they die. Yeah. Hey, I have a favor. We're at an hour. I promised we would stop yeah. at an hour. <laughs> and I would love to end with, with hope and optimism because yes. you are, the book is optimistic. I've heard you in other yeah. interviews. You are you know, relentlessly optimistic. And it's not because <laughs> you're delusional. It's because you've won incredible <laughs> victories. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about for the, the Nestle victory and then the last bit of the book, um, the you know all the all the things on the horizon that are are inevitably going to make um, animal agriculture wither and die. Yeah, absolutely. So you know the the Nestle um, success is is one that I'm I'm most proud of. Uh, Nestle is the world's largest food manufacturer. Um, they operate in over ninety countries. Um, Mercy for Animals did an investigation, which I talk about in the book, at one of their dairy suppliers. Um, in Wisconsin that documented just horrific, horrific abuse. Um, and we launched this as um, in, in association with DiGiorno, which is 
the largest um, pizza brand under under Nestle. And because of that investigation, we were able to bring Nestle to the table. They were just absolutely shocked and horrified um, to, to, to get visibility of what was happening inside of, of their dairy supply chain. Um, and after you know uh, some campaigning and, and multiple meetings, we were able to uh, get Nestle to commit to really the most comprehensive farm animal welfare policy ever adopted at that time um, by a food company. And they committed to get pigs out of gestation crates, calves out of meal crates, hens out of battery cages, to stop the live shackle um, and slaughter of, of birds uh, from me, to stop the mutilations of cows, meaning cutting off their tails, to stop the mutilation of, of piglets, um, you know, t- tails being cut off and, and being castrated. And this was not just a policy that applied to the U.S., but applied to these 90 countries in which they operate. Um, so affecting hundreds of thousands of individual farms and millions upon millions of animals um, every single year. And this is, this is a change that started from one investigator getting a job at a dairy farm, you know, having to witness this horrible abuse, um, and is, is, is an example of what I was talking about before of these investigators having to, to stand there, but do the work knowing that, that they're, they're working to change the future. And this is, uh, just a really classic example of that. Um, uh, the, the other part of the book is the future of food, which I just couldn't be more excited about. Um, you know, I, I truly believe that the future is bright. You know, there's a, a recent study done that found that 1% of baby boomers identify as vegetarian, 4% of Gen Xers, uh, and 12% of millennials identify as vegetarian. So if you look at the chart, um, the trajectory is very clear, and it is, it is rapidly moving towards a tipping point, um, which gives me great hope. And I think if you look back at, at other you know, social um, justice issues, if you look back at um, women's rights and suffrage, if you look at, um, at civil rights, if you look at LGBT rights, these are um, movements that largely progressed from one generation to the next. And I think that the time has come um, for, for animal protection um, to, to see that same sort of generational um, progression. And I think that we're seeing that now. But, you know, the future of food, I, I think that we are quickly moving towards a day when the kind, compassionate, healthy option is the um, accessible option. It becomes a default option. And I talk about innovators in the food space, everyone from Ethan Brown with Beyond Meat to the folks at Impossible Foods, which are making vegan burgers that that bleed with, uh, with vegan heme in it. Um, I talk about Uma Valetti, who is a cardiologist who is saving lives in hospitals, um, realized that we were taking cells, stem cells, and growing them um, for medical purposes, um, and that that same technology could be used to grow meat, real meat, outside of animals um, by simply taking a stem cell, putting it in a, a suitable um, growth uh, medium, putting in bioreactors, growing it, brewing it, um, technology that now already exists. And is starting to scale. And just a few weeks ago, Uma's company, Uma's company Memphis Meats, attracted investments from Bill Gates, from Cargill, a major meat company itself. You know, we're seeing Tyson doing an investment 
in Beyond Meat. And to me, that is a sign of progress. It's a sign of these huge meat companies or protein companies seeing the writing is on the the wall, that this is the trajectory. And as I said before, this really has to be the trajectory. You know, people say, uh, ask me, will we see an end of factory farming in, 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 in our lifetime or in my lifetime? And I say, yes, absolutely. We, we really don't have a choice. Um, you know, factory farming is just so inefficient. Um, raising animals for food is so inefficient that, um, you know, we will absolutely need to have this innovation. And I, I think that, that we're already seeing that happen and it is growing by leaps and bounds every year. So while there is a lot of work to be done and, you know, none of us can, that, that know about this issue and care about this can sit by, you know, idly and just wait for change to come about. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, but I am very optimistic that the future is bright. And I am optimistic that we will um, be able to, to, to answer the question to future generations you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe you actually raised animals in this way. You know, what did you do um, to bring about that change? And, you know, I know that, that I will have a good answer to that. And I hope that everyone listening that's moved by this, that is compelled um, by this issue will start to take action today um, so that, you know, for their, their children or their grandchildren, um, when they ask, you know, what did you do to help bring about this, this great revolution, um, we'll be able to to, to be proud um, of the answer that they give. Mm, right on. How can people find you, follow you, stay in touch? Yeah, so people can go to mercyforanimals.org. They can follow us on all the social media platforms simply at Mercy for Animals. And they can find me personally um, on all the social media platforms at Nathan Runkle. And um, again, the book is, is Mercy for Animals, and it's available now everywhere that, that books are sold. Great, and it was uh, it was co-written by my buddy Gene Stone, who uh, yes, yes, who's a, a, a fantastic human being and a and a, a great blessing to the movement and to the world. And Nathan Runkle, such a such an honor, such a pleasure. So it was so unexpected to get that email. I jumped on it right <laughs> away, and I'm so happy that you are doing the work you're doing, inspiring people uh, from all walks of life, and. I hope the book, you know, hits number one on all the important lists and that uh, you continue to go from strength to strength. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a real joy. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And for more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 235. If you're new to this show, you can catch up on 234 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not my weekly-ish newsletter, you can get it and also get the Slippery Slope Report, how to stop yourself from falling off of that you know, the pinnacle of dietary and lifestyle and exercise success. And you make one little slip up. And then before you know it, you're way back doing all the things you did before. And you can't figure out how you got there or why it happened or how to ever get back on your feet again. Well, I have a report that helps you avoid that and recover from it if it does get that far. And it's called the Slippery Slope Report. And you can find it at plantyourself.com slash slippery dash slope. 
And when you sign up for that, you also get added to the Big Change Bulldog, that weekly-ish newsletter to which I just referred. So now that you've listened to the podcast, if you're interested in getting a free copy of Nathan's book, Mercy for Animals, here's what you do. Go get grab the URL for this uh, episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 235. This is the 235th show. Plantyourself.com slash 235. And you can post that on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and then email me, hj at plantyourself.com. Send me the link to your post or your tweet or your, your Insta, whatever, and that will each of those will be one entry. So if you want to do more, if you have groups on Facebook that you are part of where it would be appropriate, or fan pages, or multiple Twitter or Instagram accounts, every one of those will count as a an entry. And I'll semi-randomly pick a couple that I like from all of the entries that I get and send out a couple of books. Uh, I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have Nathan's autograph uh, on those books, but they are still books and they have Nathan's face on the cover. And so hopefully that's good enough. Okay, now to garden news. Uh, things are getting chilly here, been in the, the high mid 30s um, in the mornings, and so I'm expecting it to dip below 30 any day now. So we went out with a ton of bricks and some row covers, which are just these sort of uh, woven cloth thingies that you can kind of like put over your clo- your uh, your be- beds like uh, like sort of diapers, and they can protect up to depending on the thickness of the cloth to 30 or 27 or 26. Sometimes we'll double and triple up to keep our greens going all winter. But now, if you look, you'll just see these sort of waving, billowing things in the wind like uh, like uh, sails of a of an old-fashioned ship. In running news, hasn't been very much running. I uh, actually got a little bit sick over the weekend. Maybe you can still hear it in my voice. Um, I prefer to think of it now as sultry as opposed to horse. But um, apparently it's a thing for, for marathoners and ultramarathoners to have a uh, upper respiratory infection like two weeks after their race, sort of a, a blowback to the immune system. Um, even all the greens I eat didn't uh, completely prevent it, but I was, I was okay. I managed to go for a 12-mile run on Saturday, but I've done very little since then as I'm trying to heal, and uh, I don't think a month off after that 50K is the worst thing in the world. But I'm starting to, to itch for it, so I might go for a short run this afternoon and then work my way back in to training for the, um, the Boston qualifying event that I'm looking at in March. All right, now it's time to thank the patrons. And I do want to say I'm up to like 425 bucks a month on Patreon, which is very exciting. And a bunch of people this week, seemingly out of the blue, um, increased their pledges. So, and you don't get anything extra for increasing your pledge from five to 10 or 15 to $20 a month. There is no bonuses that you get for increasing those levels. So those were done simply out of the goodness of people's hearts to support the show. So if you're not supporting the show and you would like to, just go to plantyourself.com and click on the Patreon link in the right sidebar on pretty much any page, and you can then set all that up. So let's talk about all the people who are doing that right now. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanofsky, David Bizek, the mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolan, Ovalia Sterling, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rondo Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gillisar, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Doron Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, <gasps> Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergen, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Beacon, Craig Hovick, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Telly Mishia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, a plant happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzholz, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, and Isa Tuzinoa for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>